Welcome to Plastics Unwrapped, a series supported by Dow, the material science company. I'm your host, Maitreyi Raman. In this podcast, we're on the hunt for solutions to some of the toughest challenges facing the plastics industry. I'll be joined by my producer, Lisa Desai. Hey, everyone. She's the woman with all the facts and figures we're going to be talking about. We're going to try and have some seriously honest conversations with guests from across sectors and from across the world. So let's together figure out what it'll really take to save the future of our planet. Waste management is what's known as a wicked problem. There's often no easy answer and you have to go slowly and carefully if you want to look after people at the same time as sorting the, the waste management situation out. This week, we're talking about recycling and all the tech beyond it to deal with our mountains of plastic waste. I mean, recycling is a great word. It makes you feel so good when you do it. But are we actually saving the planet? I'm going to put that question to Lisa Desai, our podcast's producer. Lisa, what do you think? Well, when I started researching the podcast, the stats were overwhelming. 400 million tons of plastic waste produced every year. Only 9% of plastic waste is recycled. And 75 to 199 million tons, all of that ends up in our oceans. Way to be a Debbie Downer, girl. I think about the pictures of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It's being called the Eighth Continent. And the reality is this stuff isn't just isolated to one part of the world. It's everywhere. I want to talk about all these issues with Zoe Lenkovich. She is a global specialist in the technical and social aspects of waste management, having worked across the public, private and academic sectors. Now, Zoe was also the co-founder of an international waste management NGO. She currently works for the United Nations, promoting better waste management in the global south. And I can't think of a better person who can look at this problem holistically and what it'll take to solve for it. Zoe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. It's interesting when you kind of dig deep into your background, uh, the fact that you were hooked on a show called Blue Peter, which many young children in the UK would be very familiar with, that got you on this path to caring about the environment, doing waste work, trying to address how you can change the world in terms of toxicology, pollution, and then this focus that you kind of developed over the years for lower income countries. Talk us through What was the trigger? I know Blue Peter as the TV show was one of them. But what got you fascinated with the countries on the front line? Oh, good question. So I think that in the UK, when I started my career, I worked in waste management in the UK. And I did that for about over 10 years. And I saw that, you know, a lot of money and investment goes into waste management in countries like the UK. We've reached about 50% recycling and then it's kind of plateaued, you know. Our streets are relatively clean, our rivers are relatively clean, people aren't burning their waste. But then anyone that's visited a country in the global south that doesn't have comprehensive waste management services sees, you know, you can't miss it. There's litter everywhere. People are burning their waste in their backyards or their streets and so on. Dump sites are on fire. There just seems to be a lot of low-hanging fruit compared to in wealthier countries, you know, there's so much that we can do for a lot less investment, if you like, just to get that waste collected um, so that people don't have to dump or burn it, which is their only other option. So just seemed to me like a really much more challenging and also much more rewarding way to spend the next phase of my career, really. 
What's the worst thing you've seen? I mean, you've literally worked in so many countries. You must have seen some horrendous situations develop in terms of waste management. What's the worst thing you've seen? And who really bore the brunt of responsibility there? Was it the consumer? Was it the government? Was it companies? Interesting question. Okay, so I'll talk to you about the dump site in Banjul in the Gambia. So the Gambia is a tiny West African country. And like many cities, there's a dump site that's like in the middle of the city. Obviously, it wasn't there by design. The city has grown around this dump site that was originally a quarry. So it's a very typical situation. Now, obviously, the quarry's got no lining. It's been used for waste disposal for decades. So who knows what's in there? There's industrial chemicals in there. There could be medical waste, body parts even, dead animals, all sorts of things in this dump site. And literally, the city is right around it. The mayor of Canafing has done a great job at bringing the dump site under control. So he's built a wall around it. Open burning by waste pickers isn't allowed anymore. But you still do get spontaneous combustion. So, you know, the dump site is just on fire in the middle of the city. And then when the rainy season arrives, the site floods and the streets are running with black liquid. You know, and people, kids are trying to walk to school. People are trying to go to the market. It's just such an unhealthy situation for everyone around. And I would like to say that it's an anomaly, but actually it's quite a common situation in the places that I've worked. So for most people, waste is a huge health concern. Yeah, I suppose your question about whose responsibility is it? Well, in wealthier countries, obviously we pay our council tax and waste management is included within that as a utility, essentially. But in poorer countries, economies are largely informal maybe 80% informal economy. Council tax isn't really something that councils are able to collect, you know, where you've got people living in very low quality housing, you know, so who's actually able to pay to have their waste collected as a service? So even then where councils do try to introduce the service, it can still be a challenge, you know, if people are struggling to eat, are they going to pay to have their waste taken away or are they going to just set it on fire in the backyard? How do you bridge this issue? Because I know we've all been breaking our heads about this issue for many, many years. And the situation regarding the income disparity is not going to change. So in your experience, what's worked? So I think the best things that I've seen are really locally run. It's a lot of, I always say waste management is about 20% technology and 80% about people. You know, there's a lot of work to do with people, whether they're in national government, municipalities, whether it's, you know, local businesses as waste generators or householders. And at the end of the day, it does take work to get a kind of community consensus that something better needs to be done with that waste and then to develop a really low cost way of collecting it because we can put in whatever expensive technology we want, but if the money's not there to keep it running, it will collapse. Um, I've just come back from Indonesia where I saw a lot of maggot farming for dealing with food waste, which is fascinating and something that I've not come across before. So really excited by that. And again, people are feeding the food waste to maggots and then the maggots are dried and fed to fish or chickens. So it's turning food waste into protein. And in some places it's really organized. Yeah, really impressive. So I think that often the systems that we implement in Europe or elsewhere where there's you know plenty of money to pay for those services, we really need a different setup in low-income places just so that it really can be sustainable and people feel more connected to it so they're more willing to participate. 
So it's almost like we need to find a way to commercialize. I mean, going back to your maggot farm example, we need a way to commercialize and make it attractive as almost an industry in many of these countries. In the work that you've done, how do you do that? Because I know when you look at a number of negotiations going on, the waste pickers always seem to get waylaid and they get ignored in many of these discussions. How do you close the gap if we're not talking about that 80% that you're talking about in that whole waste management system that is the human being behind it? That's a really good question. And I think that as in most parts of life, it's the vulnerable people that tend to suffer. And, you know, you can bring in a new system, a new waste management system, and actually then the people who are making their living collecting recyclable materials can often then be disenfranchised. It takes care. It takes a lot of attention. It's slower, you know, which frustrates people sometimes because they're like, come on, let's go in and fix it. And it's, you know, it's not something that you can put on a spreadsheet and then just deliver in a year. It takes a lot of time. I think as well, waste pickers often, because they're just working, you know, they're not in formal employment, so they're not paid by the hour for their work. So that means that they're only making money from literally the material value of what they're able to collect. And um, packaging isn't particularly valuable materials, and that's what makes it so great as packaging because it doesn't make the price of the product shoot up whilst it's protecting the product. So I understand why packaging is generally low-value materials, but then if you're one of the people who's in poverty and collecting those materials to get your food or to feed your kids or whatever, then it's really not so easy. And to collect enough low-value material to make a living, it's a lot of work, you know, 12-hour days, 15-hour days, working in filthy conditions, often with no personal protective equipment, no health and safety training, no rights, no one looking out for you, no social services or healthcare. It's a really precarious situation for a lot of really vulnerable people. So I think that schemes, you know, like even something which sounds as logical and positive as closing a dump site can actually put a lot of people out of work. Or where an incinerator is built, for example, which I've got mixed feelings about in lower income countries because, you know, you really need a strong environmental regulator to make sure that waste technologies run safely. So, you know, these facilities are built because councils think, great, it's an easy answer, we'll do this and it's problem solved. But you might end up putting thousands of people into even more precarious situations because then they lose access to the materials that they were making their living from. So I think, you know, waste management is what's known as a wicked problem. There's often no easy answer and you have to go slowly and carefully if you want to look after people at the same time as sorting the, the waste management situation out. It sounds like it really does come down to governments in different countries trying to determine what is best for their people, rather than looking at it from a mountaintop and making it an arbit decision for the entire planet. So when it comes to rules and regs, I mean, there's a great example of how many countries in Asia just refuse to accept waste from the West. And they kind of put their foot down and said, we'll just deal with our waste. We have enough of it. We're not taking any more from the West. Do you think that is one of the regulations that needs to be looked at in the West, saying, where are we sending our waste? Why are we shipping it out? It's something we can control in the West because we have the money to. Definitely. I mean, there's quite a lot to unpack with the like global trade of of waste materials. I, I hesitate to use the word waste sometimes because one man's waste is another man's resource. And we've been shipping metals, for example, around the world for a long time. That's, you know, the recycling system is global around the world. 
But I think with low value plastics, yeah, I mean, if we don't have the capacity and the technology to recycle it in a cost effective way in a wealthy country, you know, let's be realistic. Do they really have that capacity in, you know, in Eastern Europe or the Middle East? You know, it, it just seems to me to be a logical no. If a country doesn't have its own decent waste management system and waste is going to dump sites, then I would say we can be pretty safe in saying that if we export stuff there, it's unlikely to be managed in a sustainable way that we imagine, perhaps, from a UK perspective. So, yeah, I think countries are absolutely in their rights to say we don't want, for example, used plastic packaging coming in. And because especially with the flexible plastics, it is tricky to recycle. There aren't easy, low-cost technologies that can really turn into something new that we'd want to buy and use again. So, yeah, there's a lot of issues there. And I think, you know, the Basel Convention, which is the law about the transboundary movements of waste, is developing all the time. And there's obviously a lot of different perspectives as well to take on board. So it's a fascinating area. It's moving really fast at the moment. I think there's a lot of momentum. There's obviously a lot more attention on the plastics thing in particular since Blue Planet 2, really, isn't it? And when China banned the import of used plastics as well. And then we started kind of scrambling around looking for other countries that might take it. But I think I'm all for developing the infrastructure in our own country to deal with our own waste, I think is a sensible idea. Well, that's really interesting because I want to take a pause and tell our viewers about a little something that the industry has been talking a lot about in the recent past. And it's something called advanced recycling. Also, some people call it chemical recycling or molecular recycling. Essentially, it is when plastic waste is broken down, recycled into new chemicals and plastics that they claim perform like virgin materials. This is basically you can use the plastic that you make from this kind of recycling into even things like food packaging, something you can't do with mechanical recycling that you and I all know about. Zoe, what do you make of this? Because this requires a lot of infrastructure. It is almost nascent, even in the West. Uh, Is this deserving of attention? Because there are many critics out there who'd say, hmm, hang on a minute. Yeah, I would put myself probably in the the critical side of, of chemical recycling. So what I see, if we look at mechanical recycling, which is much lower cost, Some plastics are really easy to mechanically recycle, like HDPE and PP. But if you look at PET, which is your water bottles, that clear plastic, Coca-Cola bottles, that kind of thing, it's actually not an easy plastic to recycle mechanically. It doesn't play nicely with the other plastics, so it has to be really well sorted, it has to be really dry and so on. And so that means that the facilities that do it are actually quite expensive. Now, where a technology is expensive it's much less likely, obviously, to get rolled out into developing countries where it's probably most needed. So you've got not only expensive facilities that require a lot of energy, but you've also got to collect the stuff and get it to the site, which in a lot of the places where I work, road transport is awful. And the big diesel trucks, big stinky diesel trucks, um, does it really make sense to be driving low value plastic around in stinky diesel trucks? Like, you know, I'm not quite there. Yet. So when I look at chemical recycling, I just think, okay, that's an even more expensive technology. Is this the panacea? Is this the answer? I don't think it is. I don't think that expensive technology is the answer. I think that recyclability by design and making sure that people who are on the front line of that waste collection can get a decent wage, I think that would then pull that material through 
the value chain and help to get a lot more recycled. I mean, I can see why chemical recycling is really interesting and I'm, you know, it's impressive technology and all that to be able to make new plastic from old plastic and turn it into whatever polymer you want. And that's exciting. But looking at the global perspective, do I think it's the answer? I've got to say not, not at the moment. No, I don't. Yeah. I think it's interesting you say that because I don't think guests on the show would say that is the answer. But I'm wondering if developing these technologies in the West where the budgets do exist can somehow then create solutions that can be ruled out. The question is, what do we do right now to rule out solutions for the waste that we are trying to deal with, especially as a global plastics treaty is getting negotiated? Personally, I don't think there's any need to rule out technology. I'm quite technology agnostic. I think in the right place, the right technology, fine. I just, because I work in the global south in these very poor places where they don't even have waste collection, you know, that's my focus. And I don't think that expensive technology is the answer. In Europe, labour is expensive, but technology is cheap. But you go to India, Indonesia, you know, many, many African countries. It's the other way around. Yeah, you've got a lot of unemployed people. Labour's really relatively very cheap and people need work. So does it make sense to build an expensive technology there that you've then got to put a lot of waste on the road to get to it and so on? Plus, you need a good environmental regulator to make sure that it's not causing undue pollution in itself. And that often is very tricky as well. So the question then is, Zoe, What can work at this point as the Global South really grapples with the bulk of the waste problem? So I think, again, just keeping it simple and keeping it low cost. So I'm working at the moment with an organisation called Clean Oceans Through Clean Communities. And we're working in villages in India and Indonesia because rural areas are also the last ones to be served with any kind of waste collection system. So we're working in villages um, with village councils, with the regencies and trying to help the community devise their own system. You know, what's going to work in your culture? Going in there with a European mindset um, and saying, oh, well, this works in Europe, therefore it's going to work here. It doesn't work. I've seen it time and time again. So it's really working with the communities and getting them to understand what the health risks are, what the environmental risks are from business as usual, and looking at how waste is growing every year and getting them to think, what do we want for our future? What do we want for our kids? What can we afford to do as a system? And often it's just getting stuff collected in separate streams so you keep the food waste separate so you can deal with that. Then you've got your recyclables and then what's left is much, much less. So that can go to a landfill quite safely. Plastics in landfill is just going to sit there. So if the landfill is controlled or at least semi-controlled, I think at the moment that's the best solution for a lot of places still. I know in Europe, in the UK, we tend to be a bit anti-landfill. The fashion or the tide turned against that. And I get it because it seems like a very wasteful just putting stuff there and it's going to be there forever. Yeah, it's not the answer. It's not the answer. But with waste management, the fact that there is waste means that you're always starting from a very imperfect solution. You're never going to get to perfect. You just have to get like the least bad of the options, make sure the stuff's controlled, it's not leaking into the environment, it's not being burned, uh, make sure we're protecting people's health and most importantly, doing it in a cost-effective way so that it can be financially sustainable. Zoe, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, that was an eye-opening conversation. It's a difficult challenge indeed, but like you said, we can always hope. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, my three tears. 
Zoe brings up really good points about creating infrastructure that's sustainable, that is cost effective and financially viable in many parts of the global south. So we decided to take a trip around the world to find out what you folks do with your plastic waste. This is what you said. Hi, I'm Siddhanta. I live in Chennai, India. So usually what we do with our plastic waste is we hand it over to the local recycling shop probably once a month. The recycling shop is basically a business that collects plastic or paper waste from people and provides them with a small token amount in exchange. Hi, I'm Chun Tan from Singapore. I frequently use disposable plastic containers for takeaways and would just bin it after use as there are recycling programs by the government to handle plastic waste. My name is Behar Nalwala. I live in Oakton, Virginia in the United States. And regarding my plastic waste, such as old takeout containers and plastic bags, I bring them home, clean them, and reuse them as much as possible before throwing them away. My name is Ania del Toro and I'm from the Dominican Republic. In my country, most people don't recycle because it's not mandatory. Since 2019, I began to recycle my plastic and I'm taking them to different recycling centers that have been established by some entrepreneurs who gather all these materials and then sell it. My name is Yasmina Hatim and I live in Malaga, Spain. I separate my plastics, I put them in a different bin, and I throw them in the designated garbage disposal. But I have no idea what happens to them after that. Andrea Matyshak, Slovakia. I'm trying to collect as much plastic waste as possible. Good thing is that in Slovakia, you can return plastic bottles and aluminium cans for recycling to the shops and get a small reward. Hello, my name is Kerim from Beirut, Lebanon, where recycling of household plastics just doesn't exist. What I try to do is reduce the amount of plastics that comes into my household and try to reuse to the extent possible. My name is Nick Megu from Nairobi. We are fortunate to have a lot of rivers in the city, but we find most of them are full of plastics. And I hope to get to a place where a lot of more plastics will be recycled and there will be stricter regulations on plastic circulation in the environment. That last voice was Nick Megwe from Nairobi, and he's right. The city does have a plastic problem, but Lisa, so do hundreds of cities around the world. Yeah, but I want to bring it back to Nairobi because it's a city that generates more than 3,000 tons of waste a day, and 20% of that is plastic. That sounds like a lot. How much is that? It's a lot. I mean, picture 28 loaded garbage trucks, and that includes the weight of the truck itself. I mean, that's a big problem, but we've also got to remember that not every city or country has the ability to deal with plastic that they generate, Um, the ability to do what we call basic mechanical recycling. That requires implementable policy, money, budgets, and infrastructure. But most importantly, a huge mindset change amongst people to try and figure out how they actually think about their waste. So I'm going to put the question to Chege Nguji, who is based in Nairobi and is the regional director for Africa for Child Fund International. Now, his organization's been doing just that, especially because their focus focus is on the well-being of children. Welcome to the show, Chege. What is really driving your organization's concern? Is it health? Is it environment? What is it? Thank you. I'm getting from Nairobi. We focus on the well-being of the child. We look at child protection. We want the child to grow healthy, secure. And if you look, for example, in the case of Nairobi, we are talking of a population of about 5 million people with close to 60% of us living in formal settlements or slums as people refer to them. 
And those are areas that do not have any formal systems of garbage correction and all that. So that contributes to the health of the children, education of the children, and their general well-being. So that was one of the issues that drove us into seeing how can we address the issue of waste correction. And also we saw it as an opportunity again, because for youth, we have a very big number of youth, unemployed youth in the country. And we see this again as an opportunity to address the needs of the youth. So Chege, run us through what you actually do and how do you actually achieve this? For example, Down has supported our programs in Kenya. We're in two informal settlements, Kasarani and Mukuru. These are big informal settlement areas. And in, for example, in Mukuru, there are no facilities for garbage correction. So what we do in order to ensure that those facilities are there, youth are engaged and children are growing up in a healthy environment, we have been able to organize into youth groups, also organize women into women groups and help them, equip them, train them. And with the support of DAO and other donors like Coca-Cola, try to get them equipment they need to go around correcting and sorting out waste. And we are able to bring them to the market. Now, when they do that, they have created their own source of employment. Also now, their parents and like the women group, they are able to get money when they sell that money that can now be able to address needs, education and health needs of their children. It's not a very new concept, but they're constantly looking at circular economy. We are able to ensure that nothing is wasted. Check it, it sounds like it's key for women to understand how they can make money for their families, how youth can create their own opportunities from this waste and make money. Basically, grassroots economic empowerment is the simplest way I can think of it, where the end result is a healthier, better environment for the children in that community. So what's been the biggest challenge you've faced so far? One is there are a number of controlled waste dump sites, and that makes it hard now for people to be able to tap into that. That's one area that is a big challenge. Another issue that is critical, what I'm saying is that we need to have designated dump sites that are well organized, that can allow different types of sorting, different types of recycling, where we can have people who are dealing with biodegradable, having them correct that and maybe make what I'm referring to composite uh, fertilizers and manures. And then we have people who are looking at those that cannot be recycled, non-biodegradable. How can they also be assisted with technology, the know-how to turn that into a product? I think the other issue is charity is in terms of pricing. Because is the way it is disjointed, they are not fetching as much money as they should to hold them, to make it a sustainable livelihood. If we could have a very organized system with clear pricing, clear market outlets, and market linkages, that would also help with correction and recycling. And the other issue is a lack of capacity and knowledge. We need people, the informal waste pickers, the knowledge to understand, to know better, how do we classify plastics? How do you classify this? Having, again, a way of recognizing this informal waste pickers. Their training, but also having a way of government recognizing this. I think that would really help in making this a sustainable source of uh, livelihoods. Again, the other thing that I think we need to see is data, having reliable data, gathering an inventory, so that again, the government can see where are the bottlenecks, where are the opportunities, and how can we help the informal waste pickers to be able to grow into this. 
Is this a question, Chege, of making public-private partnerships stronger, or does it actually require involving folks like you in civil society to sit down with both public and private sector and say, this is what we need, let's figure out responsibilities. I mean, who's collecting, who's sorting, who's got the infrastructure, who's got control over the data, and then what do we do with that data? That's a good question, and I would say all hands on the deck. Plastic waste, I'm a waste management is a major contributor to climate change uh, impact. And when you look at that, who is most affected or negatively impacted is the low income. The vulnerable households are the ones who are bearing the brunt of impact of climate change. And what we have outlined is the way to go. You're spot on on that. Public-private partnerships is a way to go. But also we need to bring in here the youth, the voice of the children and the youth, how they want this being done. Because as I mentioned, youth, for example, youth and children, in the informal settlement, you are the ones who are bearing this. This is where public-private partnerships comes in, including civil society organizations that bring on board the masses. We understand better what the needs are. So we need to sit on the table. And this is, again, it's not a Kenya problem per se. It's a global issue. And Africa is bearing the biggest brand. So I think we would want to see key prayers in this sector. We're looking at the government. We are looking at UN agencies like uh, UNEP, Habitat, and others, UNICEF because of children, and also looking at, at private sector prayers. And I'm happy to see people like Dow taking their lead, saying, yes, we want to work with civil society organizations and other private sector prayers to support in this. And I'm seeing others like Coca-Cola now coming on board. Remember, with no country is an isolation or is an island. I think if I look at South Africa, I look at other countries like Zimbabwe, I look at Zambia, they depend a lot on tourism. And we are seeing the impact of plastic bottles in national parks, on animals, on oceans. So again, we need to look at all this to ensure that, yes, we are addressing the issue affecting the most vulnerable households, but also the organizations, corporates, and government are taking responsibility for that and providing the environment, the operating environment, like the regulatory environment, and the resources we need to make sure that, yes, we are correcting that, we are recycling them. We have a very vibrant circular economy in each country that we will not see anything floating around because nothing is a waste. Everything has a price. Everything has a use. Well, let's hope that that holistic conversation involving every stakeholder has kick-started on this show today. We're going to be asking some hard questions of all the guests that turn up on Plastics Unwrapped. Chege, on that note, thank you so very much for joining us and really appreciate your candor. Thank you. Bye-bye. So the question now is, what are companies doing at this point? Join me in part two of Recycling and Beyond as we talk to renewable company Neste along with Dow to understand what they're doing to keep up with the scale of the problem. We as global companies need to keep each other honest and need to make sure that we have full transparency for all of our feedstocks and know exactly what is happening everywhere across the value chain. Thanks for sticking with us to the end as we hunt for solutions to make plastics truly circular. This podcast is supported by Dow, the material science company. Don't forget to share the show if you enjoyed it. And do leave us a comment or a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.